Welcome, welcome. Hey, it's frame rate. Hey. That's the one where we uh, rate frames, ain't it? Which uh, one? Oh, yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. The movie. It's a one. frame rate. I'm Abe Epperson. I'm, I'm one of the co-hosts. Michael Frame. The show's named after me. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's about deciding if I'm good or bad. If you hit thumbs up, I thumbs just asked my friends. My right friend now, Michael. Come on, am I good? Am I good, please? <laughs> this week, it's a thumbs up. All right. And we are right. out of here. Podcast time. <laughs> no, uh, we're acting crazy because we're crazy today. Yeah. It's a day of insanity. Mm hmm. Uh, and that's partly due to the topic of today, which is mm. 2012's Seven Psychopaths. I ah. set them up, you knock them down. That's right, knock Seven Psychopaths. Down. What year did you say? 2012. 2012. Not too long ago. Okay, I'm just trying to set my mind to that year. Uh, the world was years. going to end, according to Mayan calendars. Mm-hmm. I was huddled in a bunker drinking my own urine because of the, mm-hmm. what the Mayans said. Okay, I'm there. Uh, yeah, great film. Sam Rockwell, if you haven't seen it. Uh, Michael Stuhlbarg. I, I mean, he's not in it for long, but I mention him because he's, he's... He's the first, so second butter. face you see. He's so good. And he's uh, so good. <laughs> yeah, a lot of great people. Christopher Walken, notable. Tom Waits. Yeah. Written and directed by Martin McDonough, who also brought you In Bruges and yes. fucking Ebbing, Missouri Billboard Time. Let's talk about it. That one with the mm-hmm. long title. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we're digging into. And we're not alone. We have another no, we aren't. psychopath with us. So Three psychopaths. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself, third psychopath, in some crazy way that makes me laugh <laughs> with a deep belly Uh-oh. laugh. Oh, my God. Uh, my name is Jordan. Likes to eat babies breeding. Um, <laughs> I don't know how I got that name. That's great. Yeah, crushed it. You did it. Welcome, George. <laughs> Can I be in the psycho club? Are you Can I be in the psych? You are. Yeah, you're in. We're three oh, sevenths of the way there. And uh, let's just launch right into this, bitch. We usually do that by asking our phenomenal guest, uh, thanks for taking the time, and let me pick the part of your brain about seven psychopaths. Would you? Uh, first of all, had you seen the movie before? Did you watch it for this? And uh, what'd you think? Uh, I had seen the movie before. I saw In Bruges uh, when I was in college, I think, and I loved it so much. I saw Six Shooter, and so when Seven Psychopaths came out, which was my junior year, I saw it in our little theater on campus, and I I like it a lot. I actually think it's my least favorite of the the four things that he's released, potentially, but I still really like it a lot. Mm, I love Mark I'm McDonough. unaware of Six Shooter, so fuck me. Is that another McDonough movie? It is, but it's a short film. It's, oh. uh, but it's like a, it's like a novella. It's like forty minutes or something, if I'm not mistaken. I love that. It's so. I mean, talk about hard to make. I mean, he's Martin McDonough at this point, so he can get it done. But no one makes forty minute films. You I think know? It, <laughs> everyone makes forty minute shows. That's interesting. I think it won well, best playwright, right? Let I don't me, know. Let I me believe rephrase you. That. It won by I, short. <laughs> I have not heard of it, so I don't know. But um, I do love Martin McDonough. I think it's important we pull out him as the through line. And as Abe mentioned, he uh, started as a playwright, and I knew him as a playwright before he made the jump to film. Right. And 
It's that's rare. I mean, you got Tom Stoppard and you got Martin McDonough where it's like, wow, he nailed it. He did it. He did the leap. He leapt from one medium to the other and it's still good because <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, he used to do, you know, these amazing plays. Like, I don't know if anyone's familiar with Pillow Man. Uh, Daniel O'Brien recommended it to me and I became obsessed with it. So good. So he he is a very renowned playwright, um, which oftentimes points to you not being able to disjoint time as much as you need to and something that i always admired about mcdonough films and seven psychopaths specifically is it couldn't be a play it's rare when a playwright makes the jump to films and they write films that could not be plays that like he's getting better and he's he's getting better yeah speak to that what do you mean by that exactly or you think Um, uh, abbing missouri shows more film craft than in bruges absolutely oh man uh and i think that this shows more than in bruges um, it's more of, it's, everything's about the writing really. But when it comes down to like, if we want to just talk directorially, he has more complex shots. Um, so he's developing in terms of the medium, he uses visual tactics in order to display information for the story more often. Um, now this doesn't mean that he's, uh, it, it doesn't mean that the film is like, uh, chef's kiss directorially in like my Bird opinion Man or whatever but yeah. it's uh, or whatever uh but it's showing that he's he's actually putting his mind behind the craft of directing the eye as opposed to directing the mind i don't know what uh, the equivalent <laughs> would be dude uh Birdman is like a top five film as well so i'm glad we're already mentioned that that's been brought up unless you hate mm-hmm. it but mm-hmm. i freaking love Birdman. I think it's. Yeah. I think the story's fine. I think the directing is okay. Next that's level. fair. I, the directing's he, kind of the star of the show. Yeah, this is not about Birdman. Well, I was just gonna um, say yeah. his argument with the critic is one of my favorite little, I don't know, discussions I've I've seen in a movie. But it's fine. We don't have to talk about Birdman. All right, we'll get you back for Birdman. But man, <laughs> but case in point about what Abe's talking about, I forgot how much I love the opening shot of this, which does come from it's a playwright's wheelhouse because it involves complicated blocking. And that's the kind of trick you pull off in a play where you're like, look, they memorized the lines so perfectly that everything times up. That must have taken a lot of rehearsing. And I Mm -hmm. love that opening shot where the Jack of Diamonds slowly like it follows style. The entire scene is walking at a steady clip from the far background to the foreground, and it ends with him shooting the two guys in the head that we are looking at in the foreground. That, you know, just, I mean, you barely think about it because you're just letting it wash over you, and it feels cool, but it's even cooler to pause and reflect on the fact that Stuhlbarg and Associate had to perfectly time out that conversation with the squid. Unless yeah. it was all CG, but it looks like squibs. Um, I think it was CG, actually. Okay, that would make this shot a lot easier to accomplish. But I still just love the idea of they're like, okay, this scene takes two minutes and 14 seconds because that's how long it takes Sam Rockwell to... Ooh, spoiler alert. Mm. Sam Rockwell oh to walk up from the background and shoot them in the head as the Jack of Diamonds. And talk about a killer. Like So, okay, so I'm going to leave this task to Jordan. Uh, Jordan, could you describe like the feel of the movie or what it's about, you know, elevator pitch for people who don't even know what we're talking about. I'm sure most of our fans are aware of seven psychopaths, but in case someone hasn't seen it, what, what is this madness? It's a lot of that. um, It's a lot of that like movie within a movie where somebody in the movie 
is either writing the movie or is getting the inspiration to eventually write the movie. So it's a screenwriter in L.A. struggling uh, to write his next movie, and the only idea he has is that it's called Seven Psychopaths, and he has one psychopath, and then he starts accumulating more psychopaths as it goes um, until eventually he can write his screenplay successfully, presumably. Which is presumably the screenplay for the movie that we're watching. That's my assumption. I, I, I That's my takeaway. I mean, I guess it could theoretically be <clears throat> some third unrelated screenplay that's also called Seven Psychopaths, but I think it's an Ouroboros, right? Like, I think it's structurally supposed mm. to be... It's like adaptation. You're watching the movie, yes. and the movie's about the process that produced the movie that you're watching, which is a fun little trick because, of course, that shouldn't be it's, possible. How could you write it? I was actually trying to think of because I was trying to think of Charlie Kaufman, for example, also loves to do that. Yeah, or like Ferris Bueller, or um, like French Lieutenant's Woman, or something like that. That has narrators that speak directly past the fourth wall to the audience. He doesn't do this, and I was trying to think of what it's like. The removal of the veneer of story and the wall breaks. Uh, it doesn't have to be entirely Brechtian. Uh, the one that I thought of that this most is similar to is actually Arrested Development. There's a narrator. They know the outcome of the story and reflexively reference their placement out of the story's time. And it's usually played for jokes. Like the characters themselves aren't aware of the shape of the story, meaning like the beginning, the middle, the end, directly to us. But they're taking turns writing it with their insane actions. Um, Almost Shakespeare and love-ish also, where it's that tactic right, of like... Yeah, a little bit. You Like uh, Sam Rockwell at the midpoint says, or I'm sorry, Colin Farrell says, mm-hmm. I think this, I think that screenplay should end with they just drive into the desert and they just <laughs> sit and talk about their feelings. Yeah, exactly. And he goes, that's stupid. It should end in a giant shootout. And then the movie ends with a, them going to the desert, talking about their feelings, and then there's a giant shootout. So it's like they take turns right. controlling reality reality Uh, yeah and it's it's interesting because i usually like movies that have a core message that i can really get behind or at least like fascinates me to think about Mm -hmm. seven psychopaths feels like it is what it is meaning like it feels like yeah it feels like a challenge mcdonough set for himself where he said what if all i had was a title and it's almost like a homework assignment where you're just showing off that you can bullshit beautifully for two hours i agree it doesn't uh i don't know that it gets at anything too sweeping or deep it's just like what if all i had was a title and i just started and all i have at my disposal are storytelling tools and that's why the movie includes these vignettes where it's like within this movie within a movie Tom Waits will come and say, I have a story and it'll cut to his short film of his movie and so like it's almost a collection of short stories that are just about psychopaths. And the other thing I really thought was interesting. I, re- is- I literally wrote that down. That's oh, hilarious. really? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, then let's live in this for a minute. So does that cheapen it? I mean, do you think like, so, I don't know, Jordan, well, did you, do you feel with let's an em- go to Jordan? Yeah. Well, do you get like an empty feeling? Is it empty calories? This movie? That's what I found myself asking this time. No. So, I mean, that was one of the things that I was, in- I-, I actually wrote down. McDonough is so good at small stories and then Dash Six Shooter, which, you know, if you like that element of him, like the stories within stories within stories, um, there's a lot of good ones in Six Shooter. But I feel like I feel like it kind of comes down to um, 
you remember when he's sitting in the desert and he's sitting in the chair and he's talking about his movie, he does say something like he wants it to be life affirming or whatever. He's mm-hmm. like, I don't want mm-hmm. it to be violent. It, it feels like partially the writing, like it's about the writing process a little bit. And I don't know. I was trying to get into this. Which I usually hate. That's <laughs> I can't believe he did it and it worked on me. I usually think that's so hacky. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because it does right. call attention to itself without ever saying like, well, like, like Colin Farrell is clearly Martin McDonough, right? Like, come well, on. Yeah. I, that's the thing is I was like, I was also appreciative that they let them use their actual accents. Like, I just love Colin Farrell's Irish accent and like his girlfriend was able to use her Australian accent. But just this idea of like, because usually you have the narrator, like the the omnipotent narrator would be like, look at all the ways that I've set up the story for this perfect revenge finale. But instead he's saying, imagine if I wrote a story that had a great setup for a revenge finale and then we went to the desert, like you're saying, and then they did. But then it feels Mm -hmm. like Sam Rockwell's character is like what creativity or like money or something. Just this, like this presence that comes in and like destroys kind of the story that he was trying to write. I don't know. Well, it's almost like when writers say, which has never happened to me, so I don't believe in it, but writers say, I was writing this and then the character took on a life of their own. I didn't decide Mm -hmm. that he would be her father. The character did that. Oh, that's that's actually a good feel. I feel like Sam Rockwell is a living embodiment of the character you're writing that takes on a life of its own. Even Tom Waits at the end is a little bit like the Tom Waits that he wrote probably would go stab him, but then the Tom Waits in the movie realizes, oh, like, well, maybe I wouldn't kill him. There's nothing I can do to this guy that already hasn't happened. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm not going to scare him into being a better man or something. Sure. Um, Well, he only kills serial killers, and Colin Farrell isn't a serial killer, so I guess he still lives by his code. Right. What I realized is that, like, both the vignettes that are pretty clear, like the the montages, um, and the what I would call like the film proper, I guess, which is like the main arc, are actually all little clever premises that someone fucked themselves over or did something that they end up regretting. Um, so when you look at it like this, everyone's a vignette. Woody, Sam Rockwell, Colin Farrell, Christopher Walken, they're all actually vignettes. They're just intertwined in one story. Um, because the reason I think that that's important is that's why that if we're looking for meaning and like the poignancy of the lesson that he seems to point to, um, in this movie, which I think Michael was alluding to, uh, kind of comes to a head when we do the final beat of the Vietnamese priest arc, which is finished by Walken, who's a man who, and Walken is a man who's lost everything. So if there's any one main point to me, it's obviously this scene. And what he says in the scene is he says something along the lines of seeing the light instead of the darkness. His quote is, it might, he says, as the Buddhist monk, um, it might help. Yeah. Right. It might actually do something. Yeah. So it, what, Right. And his. I think that's why it works on you. That's probably why it works on you because it's such a big offer. Yeah, I was thinking uh, when Michael was saying that, it's like everybody in it is sacrificing themselves for something. Like ori- originally, when Walken um, pulls out his recorder and gets shot, I. I was very confused because it didn't seem like a point, but obviously he was calling in the cops um, to help at the end. But even Sam Rockwell earlier in the movie says stuff like, 
Colin Farrell asked him why he's killing people, and it was it was to help him make the movie. And even at the end, right. I think his sacrifice, like him getting killed, was to let Colin Farrell get away. But ultimately, just ultimately, it feels like all these people are doing these things just to get a movie made, which is right interesting, right. self fulfilling prophecy because it's the movie we're watching. Right. So that's and that's the McDonough like kind of twist that I think he puts it. I think that at the top of the podcast when you guys were talking about the Ouroboros, I think that that's the elucidation of that i do think that there is actually an additional point to the movie though because when you look at the context of what the buddhist monk is saying about like his it might comment about the um and that was specifically the protest of the violence of the vietnam war Mm -hmm. and then also things start to fall in line because i think he's making like seven psychopaths it's nodded at it the title itself um, I don't think that this movie is specifically trying to make someone quote might be like be- someone might become better or steer people away from making horrible decisions or violence. But I think he is trying to shit on violent movies a bit. Colin Farrell. Yeah. Uh, at one point, Marty says that he doesn't want his hitmen story to be too violent and he refuses to pick up a gun and like that notable uh, like that's the true uh, like final shootout of the movie is when he refuses to pick up the gun. Yeah, and I think he's um, also trying to clearly delineate just because I write about movies where people die and mm-hmm. it doesn't mean I endorse in real life you should. You know, it's actually like it's a statement about the difference between storytelling and reality. Well, it's a difference right. between him and Tarantino potentially too because this movie has tons of Tarantino vibes, but it doesn't. It does. But it doesn't. Mm-hmm revel in the violence necessarily in the way that a Tarantino movie might like a lot of the violence is there and and some of it's cool and to a point but a lot of it leads to tragedy in a really in a lot heavier way I feel like than your average grounded way yeah Tarantino also likes interwoven vignettes but I would say that McDonough has earned that right for sure because like he's been doing that since back in the day his uh, like pillow man the play I reference is also because it's about the police become interested in a writer and they start to question him because he is a horror writer and every little short story he writes starts coming true and they mm-hmm. think he's doing it, but it's actually a copycat killer, you know, mimicking whatever he writes about. And mm-hmm. so again, in the structure of that, every 10 minutes we stop to be like, someone will be like, so what's one of these stories you wrote? And he'll go like, all right, so there's this guy. Like Martin McDonough right. loves stories where a writer in the story gathers everyone around and tells a story. So I definitely think it's a statement about storytelling itself. And I think that especially ties into the ending with the Christopher Walken, because Christopher Walken basically uses the power of storytelling to say, you have this ball, this angry ball of angst you have created in this Vietnamese character that you don't know what to do with, and it seems like it's going to end badly. That's what they always reference. It's going to end badly. You know this Vietnamese dude's going to cause some Mm. kind of horror. And then he says, what about if in the end of the movie we say fuck that, and those horrible thoughts were just his thoughts about what he could have done when what he's Mm. actually doing is something beautiful and sacrificial in the name of the potential of goodness. So it's, it's interesting. I think Jordan's absolutely right that it's about sacrifice, but I also do think it's about the power of narrative to like, you can tell the same story about the same hitman and it could be life affirming or it could be completely nihilistic and cynical. 
there is a there's like a verve to storytelling and a style right you overlay that's what storytelling mm-hmm. is it's not reality it's elements of reality overlaid with your consciousness like with your point of view and i think he's taking full advantage of that in a cool way that also sort of comments on it mm-hmm. a, <clears throat> a bit on the tarantino too uh, McDonough's hitmen are equally snarky and verbose as Tarantino's hitmen. Uh, yeah, and the opening scene feels exactly like feels really right. It, yeah, it feels like Royale with cheese. Additionally, <laughs> he paints like a reality that's a cartoon. Uh, how his characters act, how they listen, it's all like non-real. And Tarantino does that too. But McDonough even more so, I think, with the cartoonish elements. His people are free to become complete clowns. Like he's, a, And I think that's because he's a better writer than Tarantino. His throwaway scenes feel like improv, so they're like written with a good pace and uh, they're funnier. Um, Tarantino is undoubtedly a better director because his film rhetoric and quotationalism is off the charts. It's just powerful. But it's probably because he was introduced to us in the 90s, but he feels he's punk rock. McDonough wouldn't really dare say that. It's all taste, but I feel like Tarantino actually makes that mistake, and this is kind of a better version of a Tarantino film. Like, I like that McDonough doesn't take himself seriously. It feels more fun. I'm more free as an audience member to enjoy the results of just being in a story. Yeah, I think. Um, whereas Tarantino is like, look at how cool this is. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point too. Like, Tarantino is very clearly trying to deliver dialogue in a way that feels realistic, if elevated to some extent, usually. Yeah. But I, I was just writing this down. Um, Everything feels so written because so many times Sam Rockwell is the worst at this, but they all do it. It's like they'll double lines immediately, exact same wording. Oh, I love doubling lines. You don't like it? No, no, I think it's amazing. That's what I'm saying. Is I'm saying the it, Cohen brothers do that all the time too. Exactly, we love it. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. Cohen brothers, the mezzanine. Yeah, Cohen brothers characters don't. They also talk in a way that feels a lot more written and intelligent than an average. Like yeah. it feels more like a play, which obviously makes sense but just like you know the um i don't know they're like honey i meant chlamydia or something and then she sits down and he sits down and goes honey i meant chlamydia or something just yeah yeah all right i love that there's even one where rockwell's just like well i don't know buddy but that's what i'm thinking and he just goes huh and he goes well i don't know buddy but that's what i'm thinking exact same line reading yeah Yeah. oh shoot you you must have not heard me so i'll deliver it yeah yeah um, it's so good. Um, I think that that's his kind of a superpower is those kinds of tricks. Yeah. That's a level of writing that Tarantino, I don't think will, maybe he'll get there, but his writing is so like, what's I'm trying to think of what exactly I think what we've seen is, what we're going to see out of Tarantino. I don't think he I'd be shocked if he like had a massive change in directions. In him, I, right. I don't right. think he quite aspires to this exactly, unless he does what he says he's going to do, and sure. he like gives yeah. up and starts writing only plays or you know whatever. Like he refuses sure. to make movies and switch mediums. But anyway, I don't know. It's There's just, no way in hell that's happening. Trust me. I, like, I would watch they, a Tarantino needs show on Broadway. That would be funny as hell. It would be so <laughs> weird. It would be done as like a bit. Like he's. There's no way he can't separate himself from like the the historical narrative of the history of, of all sim- cinema. I guess like that's that's, that's what he guy has. Is. That's what he is. Yeah, yeah. that like it's uh, it, it the idea of him jumping to a play. He would hang himself. Like he wouldn't. He would hate it. 
because he wouldn't be able to show you like it. He wouldn't be able to show you each shot. He <laughs> he would lose it. He would have, probably would have like a jumbotron. Yeah, yeah. I I feel like yeah maybe he would probably be the guy that like one of the all the characters would just have like six hundred squibs on him just so. He could mm-hmm. still get that same so feel. throughout the course still of the play. Different it was gonna be like a, squibs go yeah, it's going to be yeah. like a 4D experience where like mm-hmm. the crowd is getting blasted with blood every five minutes. Be Man, amazing. Tarantino. That guy's I'll just, just say this. In high school, my buddies and I did Usual Suspects as a one-act play. It did not go over well. So I don't <laughs> think it. I don't think action thriller, crime thrillers really translate to the stage. Uh Hey, can I bring up something I thought was weird about this movie? Yeah. Do it. Uh, I mean, it's obviously, it's very quirky and weird and specific and like intentionally specific, right? Martin McDonough is like, I'm interesting. I think of odd things. That's part, <laughs> I think that's part of the offering. But I noticed this watch through way more than I did the first time. Uh, I've only seen it twice. And the, the second time I was like, I didn't realize how not broken but how intentionally not correct the structure is. It's almost like Mm. the first half of the movie is a very tightly plotted thing about plot twists and turns about finding out who are the seven psychopaths. And it even ends with the punchline of, Oh, he's psychopath one and seven. It was him. That's the reveal. That almost is a movie. It feels a lot like full metal jackets. The only other movie I can think of that did this. You're like, there's the part of the movie where you're finding out about who all the psychopaths are, then there's another equally long section where they're in the desert talking about writing and what the movie is. It's almost like watching, it's like if he showed Six Shooter, and then afterwards there was another 40 minutes of the characters in character being like, what do you think of what we just went through in Six Shooter? (laughs) Uh, He kind of bakes that into this, and that's so interesting to me and it's so perfect that it's the desert because as someone who goes desert camping a lot that is that is where you would go to be like we got to take a step back depart from this reality and just observe and think about it you go to the desert man that's where that's where you're apart from everything and you're just looking at it do you Uh, feel like there's an element where he so obviously um they they colin farrell very literally says what if i made a movie like the movie like that basically where you have the the first half of the movie is perfect and violent and then the second half is just talking in the desert it yeah. almost felt like him flexing a little bit to be like I, i'm gonna draw you in i can make this perfect movie this this tarantino-esque crime thriller or whatever and then i'm just gonna say no because i that's like that's a thing that he wants to convey is like i he, he needed to prove that he could uh, before he could deconstruct it, I guess, to some extent. I don't know. It, mm. it felt so intentional to me that you're right. Like it's, it's that perfect setup. It gets right there. And then it's like, yeah, just screw it. And then the movie just really, yeah, the tension is so low after that. Even, even the shootout stuff, you're not really that worried about anyone. Or at least it's more I wasn't. funny. It's magical. Well, yeah. right. we both, Abe and I both laughed really hard when Sam Rockwell shoots the driver of the car. Like suddenly, suddenly, <laughs> just because the writer wants him to, 
we've never seen him show this level of prowess before. Sam <laughs> right. Rockwell can hit you in the head with a handgun from like 300 yards away if he wants. <laughs> right. Yeah, apparently. he's a crack shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just opens up with the most brilliant f- like shot ever. Like a sniper and shot, but from a pistol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but immediately like is not that good at shooting guns after yeah. that. Like he's he's kind of like hitting wild. sometimes. Mainly and I love, throw down the other gun. I have two guns. I saw a third gun. Oh, you're yeah. good. You're good. <laughs> you're good. You're good. Yeah, you're absolutely right about the first the movie being like a it's like a bisection. The first half of the movie, typical movie characters. Second half, the second we hit the desert, they're writing the screenplay, and it kind of uh, turns into like that's the whole bit with him in the graveyard. He's literally writing the story, mm-hmm. and we're watching that. He does that a few times. Um, I guess <clears throat> that's done yeah, I guess it's all swirling together and the problem is with that second bit and I'm, I guess it's not a problem depending on how much value you 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 know you put up on this but I think like, he did what he wanted you, to do he probably yeah, doesn't regret what he did but yeah go a ahead A result <laughs> is that when you abandon the suspension of disbelief you know um you just don't have stakes I just can't care what happens to any of them because they're chess pieces at this point, right? So I think that that's why the poignancy of the lesson, whatever he's actually trying to grasp for, it kind of feels like a moot point at that point because, mm. it, and it doesn't strike home. I know that's a high standard to put movies to, but I mean, if you're going to make a statement like it might help, you know, like you take a shot at the king you best not miss mm. kind of thing, I guess. Yeah. So, like, that's why I would come down hard on... Well, that's McDonough why I liked In Bruges more, I think. Um, I like In Bruges. I think it's better. Okay. Well, In Bruges is more focused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more focused. It's an... Yeah. This is a wild ride. I just mean, I, th- right. I feel In Bruges every time he jumps off of that clock tower or whatever. Yeah. Or the bell tower, yeah, and I'm like, characters. oh, my so, God. Did you guys not get feels when, and it, it's partially the performance, but I really get choked up when we, it's the nonchalance with which Chris Walken says, so she's dead now, unfortunately. Mm. I'm like, oh, yeah, that breaks my heart. I love that moment. I mean, that's one of the powers of Walken is that he seems like an absolute maniac 100% of the time. And then when he says nowhere, something earnest, says like, something Whoa. really, really yeah. well. <laughs> and you go, Oh, that's why he's, I forgot. He's really good. Actually. Yeah. He's just playing. He's just playing to like, kind of how everyone thinks he's of walking, you yeah. know? Well, I yeah. Feel, yeah. I felt like that kookiness because obviously she doesn't get a lot of screen time and their relationship doesn't get a lot of screen time. I, I like, for some reason, his like weird mannerisms sold me on their marriage faster. Like this mm-hmm. idea that be like, yeah, like you know, Christopher Walken's weird, but I could see enjoying that kind of quirkiness. The like, they're like, oh, you yeah. tell me not to steal government. Yeah, you tell me not to steal. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So I agree. Yeah, that was the moment that hooked for me. But that was like. 40 minutes in or whatever, right? Yeah, and I think we do got to come down on him for... I don't think it's acceptable to just lampshade that you can't write female characters. That doesn't, right. like, excuse it. No, yeah. That's oh, the yeah. one that I thought, that's weak sauce, when he's like, all your female characters suck, they all get shot, and they have nothing to say. And he's like, well, it's, you know, it's hard to write 
that's girl. actually and i'm like that's it's funny that you're drawing attention to it but it doesn't fix that your movie is totally chris Nolan or that all chris your characters agree uh, we all agree your characters you've called them psychopaths and they're all severely flawed mm -hmm. but they're also all homophobes that's another thing okay that's what know? i was gonna ask is so in in every movie that he's made he has yeah like homophobic comments and has racist comments essentially and i know it's yeah. it's character driven but you, but you still start to get to a point you know it's like with tarantino where at a certain point you're like do you have to write the n-word that often or, or are well, you the guy to say that exactly <laughs> like, does that have it's to come from you like he has a little of that for sure seven lesbians who are disabled and work through their spazzy shit and two of them are black right. um but yeah. that line i'm like bad line uh, it's a bad line. And it's because it's done for a joke. Right. That's the, I think that's the crucial part that a lot of people say like, oh, if it's a buzzword, well, okay, well now I have to hate it or like it or have an opinion on it. Well, the context matters. This guy is really not winning uh, because he's making a joke out of it almost a hundred percent of the time when he's dropping an F-bomb or, you yeah. know, talking about a gay dog and his gay head. It's done to laugh at. And I'll, I remember, like, me and Mike, all we could do is kind of muster, like, mm. like kind of weak, kind of, like, oh, this is awkward. Well, it's laughs, like, I get what you you're know? going for, because that structure used to be not acceptable, because it was cruel. But that structure used to be very prevalent, where you're like, like, uh, in The Office, there's a whole episode about it, where Michael Scott is like, well, I'm not calling him gay as an insult. I am calling him gay as an insult, but not because it's bad to be gay. It's just when I was in middle school, gay is the insult. It's just like an interchangeable insult. And you're like... That is, I understand that. That view is fading from reality, and you look like mm -hmm. a real dickhead when you do that. Um, yeah. But it was a thing. Like I get the structure of the joke. It's I also guess, logically you know I mean? inconsistent. <laughs> well, right. so it's wrong from all the perspectives. the gay head joke is also it's a straight up rip off of his joke in In Bruges, where he's like. Um, how about right. a gay beer for my gay friend and a normal beer for me because I'm normal? And he goes, uh, your gay dog with your gay head. And he goes, he has a normal head. And it's like, yeah, that's right. A very well, that's what I mean. Is it's the joke. laziest, most time honored juvenile junior high joke, right? Is right. that's gay. Right. <laughs> 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 and you don't even mean that thing is homosexual or you know you used to mean like that thing sucks and it's like well that's the problem you can't synonymize those concepts but uh yeah we can move on i don't know it is it is problematic and it does suck and i wish that he didn't put those lines in there well i feel did. like that's one of but, the things <laughs> the other big offender i just rewatched frazier Frazier's mm -hmm. homophobic as hell for like two smart dudes. They <laughs> mostly just make jokes about how each other might be gay. It's really, we really got a problem is, with homophobia. Yeah. It is rampant, dude. And up till very, very recently, it's like completely unchecked and unchallenged. But I'm happy to live at a time where that's changing. Yeah. Yeah. Do we kill the uh, it podcast? Doesn't, it's not. Um, no, no. It's just not beyond me that uh, <laughs> Frazier would be homophobic as all hell. Uh, that that scans, I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, sitcoms you, are the worst because they take lazy jokes, and la yeah. being gay was the laziest joke of the '90s. Everyone right, was using right. it. I do feel like um, this isn't necessarily the same thing, but just talking about a thing that he, I feels like I feel like he was ahead of the curve a bit on was that uh, thing at the end. He goes. He's talking about, I don't remember specifically what he was, but they were talking about Christopher Walken's character. And he's like, yeah, he's a pro. Oh, his wife had died and he was asleep. 
And they were like, how can you sleep? Like, I would be so mad. And he goes, well, he's a proper Christian, not like these Fox News fucks. And I was <laughs> like, oh, he he called it a little ahead of the curve. I mean, I'm sure other people were I'm aware sure. of that, obviously. But I don't know. For me, I was like, my whole family looked at each other and we're like, because we watched it as a, as a family. And we were like, mm-hmm. oh, he got it. He was uh he he knew it before we did. He knew that in twenty twelve, yeah. yeah. A little yeah. early to know. I mean a little early, not too early. Fox was I mean, our still I mean, Fox has been stinking up the joint for a long time, but they have, but yeah. my, my whole family is historically pretty conservative and it wasn't until Trump that everybody was like, Oh, hmm. Ooh. Maybe yeah. we should think through some of this. Um so anyway. When was the Colbert report? What what like about when it? did it launch? Yeah. Yeah. So that it's not too early because like we were making that observation in 2005, you know, on Colbert. Right? Yeah, that's true. I yeah. mean, that's but definitely... he's also a European author, which is interesting. And I think it's actually interesting mm-hmm. to watch in Bruges thinking of it as a European filmmaker writing a film set in Europe and then mm-hmm. this as the same filmmaker writing a film set in America. And the right. same thing's true about Ebbing, Missouri. I think you do part of the unreality and part of the surreality of his movies are, I think you get a tinge of what he thinks about America, hmm. but it's yeah. not, he, but he doesn't live in America or he might now, but I mean, he, his work often strikes me when he writes about America. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an outsider's perspective on America in interesting ways where he's, he has the caricature of America is very present of like, that's why this movie's so obsessed with, you know, Sam Rockwell's so obsessed with guns. And they're talking about, should there be a gun in the movie? Should there not? In Europe, they have a sort of different relationship with guns and guns in media. So I think he's fascinated by violence in media and specifically American media and American film. And uh, mm-hmm. In Bruges certainly is also about guys running around with guns. But like you said, it feels more focused. It feels more like it has one point whereas seven psychopaths feels like a wild ride with lots of flashing colors and i it's interesting to me to think of it through the eyes of i wonder if even a little bit of that is like i know what the americans will fancy lots of bang bang and crazy lines and gay jokes yeah yeah kind of like uh, that scene in birdman just saying where he Mm -hmm. says you guys love this shit <laughs> see the sparkle in your eyes. But it's Birdman like, didn't have Tom Waits, so it automatically <laughs> is not It was a bunny. Yeah. Yeah. It was a bunny. That's fair. Um, yeah. Undeniable. <laughs> oh, if you get Tom Waits in your movie, that's half the work. You've already got a decent <laughs> movie, I would right. say. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, it's also, there's a little bit of Sorkin in this, too. Hmm. That's oh, no. the other weird thing. Walk with like, me, talk with me. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 the pacing. I keep coming back to how like Sorkin made like him or hate him, he did make the pacing of television and movies. He did influence it wildly. I like he uh I'm pretty sure it started with him. I mean because it's not like we haven't had uh s- s- like fast talking right. as a thing in movies like uh, uh, Preston Sturges, Howard Hawks, you yeah. know, like uh, fucking Marx Brothers. Oh my God. If you watch a Preston Sturges movie, it's right. surreal. He directed them to talk as fast as they can. Like people delivered yeah, the dialogue like as fast as they can. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. And it's so like, it's obvious it existed. We knew about it. It's a bit, but then people started using it as like a, 
impression of that era because it felt like that um, <laughs> mid Atlanta. Yeah, there's that Family Guy joke. Uh, fast talking yeah. high trousers is the name of the yeah. show. Yeah. I bet my peelets are on it. Yeah. Uh, and it's <laughs> so it disappeared for a while. Uh, but then we started getting like our West Wings and such. And like it's now like scenes need to move very quickly. And it's very feels very uncontrolled and slapdash. And it's I don't know that that's something that I don't know most. I don't know if most uh, directors and writers would move that fast if it weren't for Sorkin. And I wonder what it looks what like. I don't know. I, I wonder what McDonough would do with a movie like this if there weren't a Tarantino and there weren't like a Sorkin, like how it, I think it actually might've been better. I think he would, I think I mean, he was he had actually flail making for a, different touchstones. Like if there was a I, universe with no Tarantino or Sorkin. Right. I think he, McDonough loves like movie cliches and writing cliches. Uh, and, but he gets too into the weeds with doing like literal, like, okay, what would Quentin Tarantino do? You know? So, and then, that's what I'm going to lampoon kind of thing. Michael, you see, I'd his... rather he just did a crime story. Yeah. I was, I was just going to ask Michael. So I, uh, we were actually supposed to see one of his plays, whatever his most recent one was, but you know, COVID I was, mm-hmm. how do they talk in pillow man? I mean, is it, is it as quippy? Cause part of me feels like it's, it's a play thing as well. Not just. It I'm, is. It's extremely quirky what i think mcdonough loves which is a very uh great technique for a writer of dialogue is for people to say things that are fresh or worded in a way that you haven't heard before so that it feels like uniquely them right like mm-hmm. you could say kill them kill them all but instead you say i'm gonna kill each and every one of those motherfuckers with a po- with a pool cue and you're like that's more specific Mm -hmm. it's fresh it implies that character has a worldview and interesting details about them that i'm not necessarily privy to why would they Mm -hmm. pick a pool cue whatever um he's big on that and it definitely has a lot of that but it also i would say pillow man its main comparison point is that it constantly goes into short horror stories right uh but pillow man does the classic playwriting thing where people have speeches where they literally like call out the point of the play a lot more, you know? I don't think Seven Psychopaths Spoon feeds you the point very much. It, gotcha. it, it It's an easy-to-follow ride, but I've had to have this conversation with you guys to have it click and be like, oh, there is a statement about storytelling and the nature of... Oh, and there's a, oh, you're right, Jordan. There's something about violence and whether violent films need to include violence or you could tell the same story, blah, blah, blah. But that's not what jumps out at you, right? What jumps out at you is like... Man, remember that funny line? Man, remember that part when he shot her in the stomach and you were like, I didn't see that coming. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And when Pillow Man, the things that jump out are lines like, what does it mean when someone comes into a room and tells you there's been a murder, that there's been a murder? No, it means that a man has come into a room and told you there's been a murder. And I'm like, that's true. That's very interesting to think about. That you're, you, the, what <laughs> you know is strictly limited to your perceptions. You can only know... You know, you can't trust any information whatsoever. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's like, I feel like playwrights are more concerned with mental conundrums that are easily stated that then tickle your brain. Whereas, of course, movies have the benefit, like I pointed out, of going, it's forget the mental conundrum. Zoom in on that. 
look at that. <laughs> it's like well, now people you, are thinking about that. Now you don't now need to put it in it. words. You just showed yeah. them a picture and they're thinking about it. So it definitely that's what I do admire is he adapted. He did not mm. write the exact same kind of script he would have written in playwriting land. And yet he maintained his style. His like, I'm going to write a story that has 10 little stories in it. And they're all going to interconnect in a Tarantino esque style. Like his plays very much feel like his films. And yet all of his plays take place in one location and all of his films jump around, which I think is great. Good. Like yeah. you got yeah, on a, yeah, you got from medium. a bike into a car and you knew how to drive it. That's good for you. <laughs> good. good good job. Uh, and I think he's getting better. And I think, I like, think, I think he deserves and yet, a career. We know? could have totally, he deserves his career. I'm a huge <laughs> fan. Like, I'm a fan. I think we could have a very fruitful conversation about how having Missouri is racist on some levels. Um, mm-hmm. So he has, yeah, he's a he's a weird one. He has he has issues that ping my problematic radar, but I still really like him. Yeah, I think it's just because he's very smart. He's just backward in some of his he's assumptions. Just like, so. He is of the older generation. Yeah, <laughs> and I think he's he's pre- he's enough of a thinker that I think that he could learn. You know, and he could be like, oh, I'm gonna listen and start a talk I'd, on this podcast. I'd like topic. to think that like his next movie won't have any gay jokes because he'll realize, well, it's 2021 now. I'm gonna stop that shit. Yeah, you know, you'd hope. Yeah, and I, I hope that's how pe- that's how we should hope and ad hoc like hope people are gonna react to this kind of thing is the realization that when you're wrong, you you correct yourself. Yeah. You know? And again, it's um, all about context. So we'll the point is you could make a you could make a gay joke where it's at the expense of gay people if it's clear that that character's wrong for doing that. Right. That's how we're learning that they're a dickhead. It depends on how you're handling it. So we could see him handle it better in the future. And that that's, would be good. Yeah, that, but so far, that's nevertheless, Seven Psychopaths remains fun to watch for me. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know where you, you want to take this. I had a couple of weird observations that I wanted to point out. Um, oh, here comes cracked boy. All right, cracked it. Do it. <laughs> well, the, one of the uh, why don't they make the whole psychopath out of the black box? And <laughs> no, no, not that at all. This is like a, this is like an Easter egg. It's none of that. Oh, okay, although, good. although I do have one of those too. That, but I did. I won't say it now. Um, when he's looking in the mirror and he's talking to himself, uh, like like when he's um, when Sam Rockwell is getting ready for the uh, the party or whatever. Um, he says, you know, he's talking to himself and he says something about him being Billy Bickle. But, oh, and he's like, oh, Dimitri, that's a cool name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but <laughs> Travis Bickle is the taxi driver guy, right? So, like, surely yes. that's that has to be why his name is that because he's a lunatic. And why he's looking in the mirror practicing, are you yeah. talking to me type yeah, dialogue. Exactly. I just thought For that was sure. really interesting. And so I watched some of this movie uh, on Prime because it's it's free on Prime if you have a subscription. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have that x-ray thing. Um, yeah. And apparently, like, during another scene, uh, when he's talking to his wife for the first time in the hospital, walk-in, they, like, they page Dr. Blair, Dr. Jane Hamilton, Dr. Jane Hamilton, which is, like, a reference to a freaking uh, Queensryche song about a hitman or something. So it's... Okay. This is kind of the... a cameo? It's a cameo, right? Uh, I guess it's some... Or I wait, think it's just asking? an Easter egg, right? It's just an audible background dialogue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, like, they're, they're like... Paging uh, Dr. Blah, blah, blah. Right, Paging Dr. Queenstrike. Presumably no, there's that. lyrics in the song. I don't actually know the song. I, I just, 
when we're talking about like gay jokes and stuff, it's just interesting to me for a guy who's clearly as smart and has such a wide breadth of stuff and like and is, detail is, oriented and detail oriented. It's like, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it is confusing. Like that gay joke, especially a recycled gay joke. It's so weird and off putting to an extent that I know you mm-hmm. can write an amazing joke and you've got so many amazing actors. It's, it's felt weird in that moment one of the like climactic moments of the film to have such a lame joke. And it's, it's like, it almost makes me want to like crawl back through and be like, is there something there? Is he like talking about, I don't know, like the existence of man or something. I'm sure he's not, but I don't know. I was, I was fascinated with my little, well, yeah, like it would be one thing if Woody or even Rockwell, because he's kind of like a chaotic neutral character, like Mm -hmm. we're the ones, but as you pointed out, Everyone in the universe, including Colin Farrell, the likable cipher everyman, makes right. gay jokes where gay people are the butt of the joke. And there's no gay characters to defend or speak up for themselves. Right. So it's like, yeah, we're we're piling on. But yes, I agree. It doesn't it doesn't scan. It's not right. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't anyway. track well. If if you want a uh, if you want a cracked observation, I just thought it was interesting how long... we love those. I didn't yeah. mean to turn you off of those. That's <laughs> what we that's what we live for. I just saw how interesting it was that nobody ever comes to check on her um, in the hospital for like such a long time. Like, that's in a world that's surreal. The hardest thing I had, the hardest thing for me to buy was that Woody Harrelson could sit there with the chrome plated pistol all day in the hospital. That did bother me. <laughs> well, it's like he yeah, he sat there with her. That. He talked to her. Then he shot her. Then he goes downstairs. Then Christopher Walken goes up and cradles her. I mean, it's like hours, presumably. Doesn't right. matter to me in any way. I just thought it was. I was just watching it. And it was like, how long is Christopher no. Walken going to sit there? Because somebody's going to freak out. Um, Woody Harrelson is also like that's kind of what we were talking about with the cartoon stuff. He's impossibly dumb, and yet <laughs> also know? impossibly gets away with all crime. Like he yeah, never right. is worried about being right. caught. Christopher or Walken yeah. is acting weird. He saw him with flowers, and then he arrives back to sit down, and you can see blood with, on his collar. And there's shit. blood yeah. everywhere, right. and it's just like, hey, did you? He even thought for a second maybe that's the guy. I'm looking for an older guy. And he's got flowers like he's going to go see his wife or something. Uh, he almost puts it together in the hallway, but then go, but then he looks back and sees that Christopher Walken continues to walk past right. the room. So he goes like, ah, it's just some other old lady, but old man. Christopher and Walken came downstairs with the same flowers in his hand. Wouldn't you at least ask? Same flowers <laughs> covered in blood. It's just what so happened? obvious. Where did you go and up there? Yeah. And then he... <laughs> And then he talks to me, he's like, what is that? It's, and then they start talking about cravats. And a then cravat. when uh, when he shows him that he has a crazy neck wound he, uh, or like scar, he that's what sets him off. Like, oh, man, get out of here. I got to leave. Also weird instead of pursuing, he's a mobster. Instead of pursuing he's, my vengeance vendetta, I have to leave because you're grossing me out. <laughs> right. Which even though you're he literally covered in blood. Yeah. yeah, and he almost just shot someone in the head like before this. Like a so few we can assume ago. Yeah. he's done that kind of thing before. He killed, he did a murder 25 minutes ago. You know, like, why would he be like, oh, whoa, get out of here? Well, Woody is the force of, yeah. And we pointed out, I think while we were watching it, his logic is also inconsistent as far as like when he spares people and when he kills people. Like, he legitimately tries to shoot. Colin Farrell in the head and his gun jams, but he spared uh Gabare mm. Sidibe, and it's like, why? 
she meant nothing to him and he was more pissed at her he probably would have shot her in real life that character uh it's it's confusing he's a classic villain where it's like you don't have to understand him he's evil he does whatever the plot needs him to well it feels like just just tying back in in bruges a little bit it, it there's this weird honor system among thieves kind of thing that he has which is like I don't know that it's ever very clearly defined. Um, I guess in Bruges, the the simple one is you can't kill a kid, um, mm-hmm. and so that's that. What uh, leads? Uh, is it Ralph Fiennes? Rafe, I think. Rafe. Oh, Rafe Fiennes. Yeah. <laughs> Ralph, it's his brother. Um, and yeah, so in this one, there's there's like a lot of these weird. I don't know these these strange honor things that keep popping up, where it's like, well, I'm a criminal, but I'm not like that kind of criminal or like weird little things gross him out even though they shouldn't i don't know it's right it's just, yeah, he does it's, love it's a, he does love to use the mob as a generic you know guys with guns are coming why eh, they're in the mob like right. he loves to just not worry about it too much <laughs> <laughs> right yeah it's funny like woody harrelson has no tortured origin story he just is a mobster except it the end <laughs> right yeah. i like uh or the yakuza Right, yeah. he kills mobsters, right. Or the Yakuza. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there he, he drops a, a kind of a racist joke where he's uh, he says he can't write, he doesn't want to try and write any Jap dialogue. Um, oh, yeah, that was fucked up too. That's weird. Yeah, it's, Colin it, Farrell just dropped that. It's weird no that reason. Martin McDonough makes the character that represents him casually racist and homophobic. Right. That's yeah. odd. And yeah. I know a lot of people in Ebbing, Missouri found it probably... That movie is nuanced enough that I think there's a conversation there on both sides. But sure. I know a lot of people saw it as, well, he's trying to make a statement on race, and it's a pretty positive statement about the potential to heal eventually. And other people are like, yeah, but it's basically just forgiving the racist character. Is that our solution, to just forgive racist people? That sure. doesn't feel like the right solution. Right. Um, right. Hmm. We made me like this movie less than I liked it when we started. That's rare for frame rate. Congrats. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. But I really like the movie. I'm not trying to. <laughs> yeah, I, it rips. I've been wanting to cover it for a long time. It's fun as hell. Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel like I have anything Two things else. can be true. Yeah. It's true. Was there. Did the Zodiac Killer, was he tied to rabbits somehow in a way that I'm not remembering? No, that was just a fiction that he invented okay. uh, for the movie. That which the I Zodiac Killer kept is, dozens of rabbits. I love that I like historical, it. like strange historical alterations to like... <laughs> yeah, right, because in our, in our history, the me. legend is the Zodiac Killer was never caught and died of old age. So it's, it's nice. Right. In fact, it's very Tarantino right. to change history such that he got his comeuppance. Very Tarantino. <laughs> yeah, it's very Tarantino, especially like not recent Tarantino because he's been doing it for like almost two decades now. Yeah. But like Django, Inglorious Bastards, right? You know? Yeah, his his flip the script vengeance period, mm-hmm. which we uh, did a great crack sketch about. That I now worry is homophobic. A Tarantino sketch. Now we're in dangerous territory. Did you never see mm-hmm. the? Uh, our fake Tarantino trailer starring Dylan Seaton about uh, a gay no, guy so. who gets hassled by Cody Johnson, who's a homophobic preacher, and then the gay guy goes on a killing spree and kills all the homophobes. Mm-hmm. It just I seems like the natural extension yeah. of what Tarantino was going to do next at the time. Right. But it's also lampooning that like 
uh, Tarantino isn't that forward thinking on these issues right. that he's trying to be forward thinking on. So I always thought that there was an element of satire that like, for example, Tarantino doesn't really expose or even McDonough in this case, who's he's doing a comedy straight up mm-hmm. um, and he's not really lampooning it <clears throat> in the way that we'd be like, oh, well, I see that's clever. It's a satire. It's not just you know saying those words um right. i thought that i always thought that we were a cut above but yeah that could also oh i'm just leaving just the door a... open for the fact that we could have ignorantly set made mistakes but yeah. yes we try we love everyone and we tried as hard as we could to make it uh about you know come from a place of empathy and the joke was at the expense of tarantino slash homophobes but i'm just saying when you make a sketch when you're a cis white male and you make a sketch about gayness at all and then 10 years pass there's a part of your brain that wonders was that homophobic did i fuck that up that sketch 10 years ago i forget what all the Mm. lines were was it bad (laughs) yeah because i fucked it up before go check it out and tell us what you think i fuck up all the time tell us if we're canceled yeah (laughs) yeah so what why wouldn't i do that yeah you dumb you dumbass why we should only we should only write stories about friends who do nice things together and have a lovely time well, yeah, then no one will get hurt. If you you're you're making the literal argument progress. against cancel culture right now. I mean, that that is like one of the things that that people are going to say, right? They're like, well, so I'm not allowed to write anything starring gay people or I'm not allowed to write anything where bad people say. Well, bad that's things. A, that's a legitimate. not that we need to get into that at the end of this frame rate. But can, I just think that's interesting. Bit. I just think that's a legitimate conundrum that writers, especially cis white writers, are going to have to face where it's like. I completely agree in the movement where of like, hey, if you're going to have a, uh, let's say, an uplifting movie about the struggles of being trans, maybe a trans person should write it. That totally makes sense. Uh, Of course, everything's a spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, like if you went as far as you could with that notion, we would only have you'd only be allowed to write about your own life, things that happen to you. You know what I mean? Like, well, you should only write about stuff that happened to you because you can speak to that. Well, that's too far. Well, where is the comfortable line that's happy for everyone in the middle? I don't know. I think we're all collectively trying to figure that out. Yeah, and I feel like you would hate, I feel like you would hate the notion that like, all right, well, as the system currently exists, the majority of Hollywood screenwriters are presumably cis white dudes. And so if they're only allowed to write Taken or whatever, um, then there is a degree... Or maybe they should just step aside. I don't know. It's it's really interesting. No, no, keep going. Well, only no, that's taken. what I'm saying is you can't only I'm have... Our, I'm on board. You can't only have <laughs> biopics. You can't only have autobiographical, right? Like, just like a trans writer well, should be able to write Die Hard if they want. Like, what, yeah. what the fuck? Well, it's more yeah. It's more just that... Um, make make them ups. If, if, say, Martin McDonough was only allowed to... And just to get away from this so that I don't get anything weird. If Martin McDonough was only allowed to write about Irish films um, and, say... Irish Hollywood Dublin Irish cultural touchstones or whatever. Yeah. I don't have any problem with that. I more mean that it would be, it would be a bummer if some of your greatest writers weren't, um, weren't allowed to dip into other things, even if they could handle it well arbitrarily. But I guess, I guess ideally what they would do is they would be able to like one of the things that I think one of my favorite shows the last couple of years was uh, Watchmen. And obviously the showrunner was a white guy. Um, even though it dealt with a lot of racial themes. I do think he did a really good job of assembling a writer's room of people that experienced that more directly. And I don't know if you saw any interviews with him, but one of the things he said was 
he only took writers. He didn't take writers that say it was going to suck or like, how dare he? And he didn't take writers that said it was going to be amazing. He only took writers that were like, I really think this could be problematic. And he's like, that's what I want. (laughs) He's like, I know it could help me. You need people checking you. Yeah. So especially if you're coming from the place of I'm the, I'm in the demographic that needs to be checked. I have the unexamined biases. I have that privilege. Yeah. So maybe it's just more, more movies should be co-written in a, in a way that's fair. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I think, but at the, yeah, but I also agree that work, you know, like, yeah. So we can do that. Uh, it's tough because sometimes when you're working with a budget, you need to have one unified vision Yeah, yeah, yeah. and a committee can, you know, make those waters murky, but absolutely when it's the construction of the thing, uh, from, from a level of like, what are we trying to say? Yeah. What are, what are we going for? Well, that can all happen for free before the production even starts. Um, so I don't know. I think that, that we can do a lot better with that. I think we've gotten very easy, especially as you mentioned, TV as an example. Uh, I hated the watch Watchmen. Oh man. You know, it's all up to taste. Uh, I'd rather go to something like uh, Lovecraft Country for something like that, but like I don't like Lovecraft yeah. Country. That's funny. I'm liking Lovecraft Country quite a bit, <clears throat> but I think what it when it comes down to it, it's about like trying to make sure that you cut a place in the room for multiple voices and multiple contrasting voices. Most importantly, sure, that will yield ultimately a better, more fuller discussion of what you wish to discuss. And if you don't, and you're flippant about those things, I think we should ding you. Yeah. And that's, and that's, (laughs) it's not cancel, cancel culture as much as, hey, you didn't do that work. It's like me going and like, please paint my house. Yeah. Uh, You missed a spot. I'm going to call it out at you and maybe you shouldn't get as much money. You know, maybe you, uh, maybe you did a shitty job and maybe mm-hmm. we should not hire you again. That's Are there... the extension of cancel culture, but there's many things to do in between where it's just like, well, people aren't as enthusiastic about like what your you're com- making. Your anymore. house painting company. You, you refuse to learn. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I definitely <laughs> yeah. think there's a couple of interesting, we've just been talking about it a lot recently, me and some people. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things is, I'm mostly in defense of cancel culture stuff and I've just been having this argument a lot. And one of the things is, I think what you're just basically saying, one is just like, I mean, it's not the sexiest term, but it's pure capitalism, right? Like if people don't want to watch your movie, they don't have to watch your movie and they can pick any freaking reason they want to not watch your movie. They can pick it because they don't think you're the guy to do it. They think it's problematic. They could not watch it because they think it wasn't problematic enough. People are crazy. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, so you don't, you're not owed anything money wise. It is pure capitalism (laughs) in the sense of that is your purchase power in this system that we have. Yeah. But ultimately it's not, it's not the important part. Isn't that it is or isn't capitalism. The important part is itself. (laughs) It's self policing. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's uh, so that's what I guess. It's also you know, the Adam Smith was talking about it with the invisible hand. But the point is, it is self policing. It is a a group of people making an assessment on itself. Yeah, that's the important. And part. the entire extended universe of all fiction creates a meta narrative that normalizes. You know what I mean? Like stories are the way we tell ourselves this is what life is like. Sure. And right. 
So if you don't have that multiplicity of voices, you are deluding yourself into saying life is like this one thin slice of perspective. That's what life is mm-hmm. like. But you missed the spot. Uh, so yeah, I agree with a that. Big spot, Absolutely, because life is multicultural. Yeah, and we, but I we refuse to learn that lesson but for there's decades. Also, something beautiful about, or like, the appeal of being in fiction to me is that I get to do an empathetic act of imagination and pretend what it would be like to be in different circumstances or a different type of person. Sure. Uh, so it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I see um, both sides, but I am. Like you, Jordan, largely in defense of cancel culture. Even the rare cases where you're like, I guess that was a little extreme. It's like, well, so one out of a thousand people, you know, like most of the people who get canceled either super deserve it or I don't know if you're worried a, about X, Y, Z specific case of someone getting canceled. All I'll say is you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. And like, that's nothing compared to all the stifled voices that have been stifled for hundreds of years. Right. Like if, if one or two old white men gets accidentally canceled, I'm not really sweating it that much. What? Okay. Even if that happens to me, I'll take that hit. What are the, what are the like good examples of people actually being canceled? Cause it's like, Somebody who's potentially raped somebody, that's not being canceled. That's like a crime, you know? Well, like it is. All the Me I think Too it's stuff. both. Like, I would say the Me Too movement is responsible for Harvey Weinstein finally being brought to justice. People knew that he was a criminal before that, but, like, but it took the public cancellation of him and the public fury for our society to be like, yeah, you go to jail. Well, sure. But I guess, I guess what I mean is, like, if I'm somebody who says, I'm against cancel culture, I don't think you would say, but... The rapist Harvey Weinstein should should be like I'm so against cancel culture. I hate what happened to him. Does that make sense? Like I feel like the people that um, say I think there are people in our circles who genuinely think Louis C.K. was unfairly canceled, which is ridiculous to me. But I've heard that espoused. Okay, all right, um, that that might be you know quote a unquote example, all he did was whip his dick out. Because I feel like James Gunn technically was like, like an example. physically rape anyone, but it is a crime. That's my point. Yeah, yeah well, that's, that's my point. <laughs> I guess that's what it's I'm saying. It's also not cancel culture if they did a crime. That's So you're saying what's the example of the person who's unfairly canceled? Yeah, I don't I just, think they're... I think they're hard to think of because it's largely blown out of proportion. Well, Most like, of the people who get canceled did crimes. Well, that's what I mean. Like James Gunn is a, a person that I might actually be in defense of. But the, the, oh, there's one. Got yeah, he got canceled and then uncanceled. Yeah, he now he's got he's shit. got double the movies essentially because he yeah. got folded into DC. So I guess that's the other thing is the people who rail against cancel culture are usually like Dave Chappelle right, rails against cancel culture and then gets a $50 million deal. Yeah. And goes he's home. doing fine. So that's, <laughs> yeah, that's the thing fine. is like, it's like they're either criminals who should go to jail or, or they're it not doesn't really seem to canceled. affect them. And so yeah. I'm just, I, 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 when we talk about cancel culture with people, I'm always like, what are you worried about? What are we talking about? If you committed a crime, you should be worried for things besides what Twitter says. Yeah. And then, I haven't heard anyone not get a job because they are, just have weird thoughts you know like maybe someone I mean, I'm sure might not want to work exists, with them maybe was Roseanne, did levels. Roseanne do anything did Roseanne get yeah, canceled she, I, yeah, she got kicked off her show I guess racist that's, stuff and yeah got, and but then that's a choice okay maybe that that's a, you that's made a publicity out of our example. show but again it is, is an extreme privilege to star in a multicam sitcom named after you not yeah. a right you don't have a right to that yeah you right. can lose it for any number of reasons you can lose that privileged position it's easy to lose you know yeah, yeah. if I said racist shit and I worked in a factory in if the factory was well managed I would get fired <laughs> sure 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good example. Roseanne is one that I hadn't thought of. Uh, where, as far as I'm aware, she hasn't committed a crime, and she did. She just said mean shit. Yeah, and she appears to have actually been punished in a way that wouldn't have happened if Twitter or whatever hadn't freaked out. So, okay, there are some examples. I I just, whenever I get in these conversations, I'm like, no, criminal, criminal, criminal. Has like seven movies Mm -hmm. coming up, so that doesn't count. Uh, yeah, but, right. But, yeah, but wasn't Roseanne really canceled. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. they were viral for one day on Twitter, but they still work regularly. I wouldn't really call it canceled. Yeah, that's totally. what I mean. It's like I just I think sometimes it feels overblown to the extent that you're like maybe we should think of a different way to no, uh, take people no, out. Cancel <laughs> culture really is a thing. Uh, but I mean I don't know. Yeah, like I just copy paste what Mike was saying about like. Y- you got millions of dollars, Roseanne. You know, like you're fine. We're good. Like, if you're not a criminal, I am yet, you're fine. I would love to be canceled. You know, <laughs> to take have a nap. Ability to have a career where I'm getting millions of dollars and can make what I want, Are and then lose me? it. That meant you had it. Yeah. I mean that. Yeah. If I like had to do a Faustian kind of thing, where I probably would think <laughs> about it, and like, say, probably wanna... not. I'll be fine just doing my little podcast. Yeah. If the devil I was guess. like, you'll have 25 years of. Uh, a creatively fulfilling mm. career in this industry and then at the end of it you will be compelled to say something racist and get canceled mm. would you accept the <laughs> You'll deal be compelled. that's the uh, yeah the devil not. will just do it uh, apparently yeah. that's a that's a actually very common so the atlantic writes a bunch of articles about happiness and they went i think it was like 60 percent of high-level athletes would take a drug that would make them win every sporting event they ever did for five years and then <laughs> die Wow. And they were like, that's oh, okay. worth it. Hell yeah. Give that's me five crazy. years of success and then Instant nuts. gratification. That's all I need. Instant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. So that's 25 years isn't bad. Good show. Good episode. Yeah. All right. Thanks for Thanks. hopping on with us, Jordan. I've been wanting yeah, to talk Seven Psychopaths for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, we've, we've cleverly alluded to what you're up to, but why don't you let people know officially what you're up to and, and where they can check you out? Um, yeah, I am making crack stuff again and trying to keep the dream alive as best I can. So YouTube search cracked, uh, anything since April is mine. Everything else is stuff you should check out because it's great. Yeah, man. And, uh, if they're hiring, you know, let us know. They are actually. (laughs) They can't afford me. Okay. Well, just <laughs> they, they literally Boom. like today oh, we wrote it. <laughs> we wrote the job description. So if you want it, man, hilarious. I wonder, Abe, do you think we could get jobs at Cracked if we applied now? I don't know if I have the qualifications. I th- I think it might be fun to find that job listing and apply under a fake name with my real credentials and see if I get the job. Dude, you would. I bet you could. You would come to me. <laughs> oh, you'd interview me. Yeah, I'll wear a mustache. I'll Hell wear a mustache yeah! Or something. I'd be like, yeah. show me your portfolio. Show me. Do you think and you I get will... the cracked voice? Do you get the cracked voice? Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, anything that you count down in a list yeah. format. Right. right. It's a stand-up routine. It's give as simple or take. as that. Yeah. I'll walk across the floor and be like, and this is your edit machine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You, as, that's a as you insert candy. the footage here. As Michael <laughs> destroys every computer in the office and they're all just <laughs> fritzing. Uh, no, thank, we appreciate you keeping the dream alive. Yeah. It's a beautiful dream. It's nice to know that there's a lone fire burning in the trenches. Mm-hmm. 
It's 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 a very weird, unexpected thing that weird just, wild stuff. <laughs> it just kind of happened one day. So that's right. That's how it happens, listeners. One day, you too might just suddenly work at crack. <laughs> it <laughs> just happens. That's how it happens. That's how that's it goes. Basically, what happened. So just hope for that, I suppose. Until that beautiful day, this is Frame Rate. I'm Swaim Frame. I'm Abe Frame. We frame you for murder. Okay. <laughs> this has been a small beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash small beans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash small beans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.